and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, and today I'm joined again by what I'm calling our Russia Brains Trust here at SSI Live, namely Bob Hamilton, Craig Nation, and Steve Blank. Dr. Bob Hamilton is a research professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at SSI. Previously, Bob was a member of the teaching faculty here at the U.S. Army War College, and prior to that, he was an active duty colonel and a foreign area officer in the U.S. Army. He's written on and traveled throughout Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Dr. Craig Nation is an adjunct faculty member at Dickinson College. Previously, Craig was the director of Russian and Eurasian Studies at the U.S. Army War College, where he taught for 21 years. He's also taught at Elizabethtown College, USC, Johns Hopkins, and Cornell. And Dr. Steve Blank is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, a D.C.-based think tank. Previously, he was a research professor of Russian studies at SSI for over two decades. And before that, he taught at the Air War College in Alabama and at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Now, I've asked these experts to join us again today to discuss the arguably momentous changes we've seen in the Russo-Ukrainian War over the last couple of weeks. Among them are first, dramatic advances by Ukrainian forces on the battlefield, especially in the Kharkiv region, but also now in Donbass. And then, perhaps in response, the partial mobilization of Russian reservists and others. Third, Moscow's decision to announce the annexation of four more Ukrainian territories. And finally, Putin's nuclear saber rattling. So, gentlemen, let me start with the first two of these, Ukrainian battlefield successes and Putin's mobilization. Are, are these things related? And uh, what does this mobilization tell us about the direction of the Kremlin strategy? Do you think it's shifting? And, and if so, what uh, what objectives do you think it's shifting toward? Bob, let me turn to you first. Sure. Uh, thanks, John. So I do think it's shifting. And I think we have to look at the mobilization and the annexation decrees as uh, as part of a single whole. Uh, in other words, uh, we have to look at them together. They're connected, right? Both are part of an attempt to stem the tide of recent Ukrainian territorial gains in the war and regain the initiative in the war uh, for the Russian side. Uh, in, in terms of the mobilization, I think we'd be unwise to assume that the mobilization of, of several hundred thousand soldiers, however many it, 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 it ends up being, right? The, the announced figure is 300,000, but a lot of people are saying, you know, having having gotten a look at, at at leaked mobilization roles, it's up to a million. Nevertheless, I think we'd be unwise to assume that the mobilization of that many soldiers won't have an effect. But the effect is likely to be blunted by deficiencies that we've already seen, right, in the Russian armed forces, deficiencies in leadership, in training and equipment that are only going to be exacerbated by uh, pushing that many more soldiers into the fight, right? You only have so many competent leaders especially at the, the field grade and general officer levels, and those have taken significant casualties in the war. 
you only have so much equipment and Russia has lost a lot of its high end equipment in the war. So it's increasingly relying on on older equipment, things that's pulled out of warehouses and then training these these newly mobilized conscripts will clearly not have the the amount of training that a normal uh, Russian soldier would get. But just the presence of that many forces, if concentrated at certain critical points in Russian lines, will, will shore up their defenses. So while it's not likely to be a, a game changer or change the course of the war, I think we would be unwise to assume it'll have no effect at all. And in terms of the annexation, I'd say it's as much about politics or policy as it is about strategy. The strategic part of it was an attempt to deter Ukraine from exploiting the military gains it's recently had by proclaiming these areas as Russian territory. By the way, this isn't working, right? The early evidence this isn't working. One day after the, the, the announcement of the, mobile, or the annexation, Liman, which is a key logistics hub in Donetsk province, was liberated by the Ukrainians. And then since yesterday, as you noted in, in the introduction, John, they've been making pretty significant gains in the south in Kherson province. Um, the policy component is that under Russian law, conscripts can't be deployed outside the borders of the Russian Federation. So by declaring these areas as part of the Russian Federation, Putin can deploy them, uh, the newly conscripted, as, as part of his partial mobilization without violating Russian law. And the, the political component, I think, is an attempt to fend off a challenge from the hawks, people to the right, more nationalistic, more aggressive than Putin, particularly people like uh, Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya, and Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, uh, who have called for more vigorous prosecution of the war. Thanks, Bob. So it sounds like less strategic implications and more uh, operational, but also political in terms of domestic political maneuvering. Craig, what's your read of, of these latest, uh, latest movements? Well, I think uh, that Ukraine has made advances. Uh, to, to call it a, a, a dramatic, I, I think, it's too soon to say that. And I think you made the, the, the point there that are, are these strategic successes or operational successes? Too soon to tell, especially what happened in, in, in Kherson yesterday and the day before. I, I mean, maybe someone knows more about the state of play than I do, but I, I think it's too soon to draw hard conclusions about that business. The mobilization in my mind, it was long overdue, and it's not surprising. There were voices inside the Russian armed forces calling for mobilization. But Russia's fundamental strategic weakness in this seven, eight-month-long conflict has been inadequate force structure uh, in, in theater. Uh, and that's been exploited in, in, uh, in the month of September um, <clears throat> effectively by Ukraine to make, make uh, let's call them partial advances. Uh, symbolically important advances. How far they can extend, uh, that's not clear to me. I don't think it's clear to anyone. But uh, I'm skeptical about this narrative, uh, sort of a command narrative that I think Bob articulated it pretty effectively, uh, that uh, Russia has all these problems, that it's, it, it's, it's, nothing works, that the soldiers are not motivated, that their weapons are depleted. But I, I'm, I'm skeptical, skeptical about all those conclusions. I think that's maybe a little bit more wishful thinking than reality. And of course, we have to understand the Russians. The Russians are not Germans. They don't do things efficiently. They never have. That's there, but it's, I mean, it's in a funny way always been there. Their priority has been uh, completing the investment of Donetsk Oblast. They haven't been able to do it. They've got hung up. There's several outcomes that we could 
look towards, and I'm not sure which one will come to pass. Uh, I think Russia's already made, uh, excuse me, Ukraine has already made uh, a pretty significant uh, step towards uh, prolonging the conflict, the refusal to accept these annexations, uh, demonstrated ability to strike back, to push back. Uh, so this conflict will go on for a long time. Um, <clears throat> the mobilization should address what I feel is the Russian Armed Forces critical deficiency at this point, inadequate force structure. Uh, it could well enable them to uh, use those forces to complete the investment of Donetsk province, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, push the Ukrainians out of that area um, and hold the line in that matter of speaking uh, in the, in, 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 on, on, along the fringes of the other uh, four provinces they've uh, they've annexed, and and, and, and and that's the same for the Russians. This is not what they wanted. This is not an ideal outcome. You might say it's minimally acceptable from a Russian point of view. Uh, and the, the war is going to continue through the winter and into the into the next summer's uh, uh, fighting season on those terms. That seems to me to be the most likely outcome, and the, and and the real logic of mobilization. They obviously didn't want to do it. They needed to do it. Uh, it's uh, it's less desperation, I think, than determination on the Russians' side not to lose. All right, let me turn to Steve now. Steve, what are your thoughts on this? Is this, uh, as Craig is suggesting, less of a change in strategy or a shift in strategy, but rather uh, an effort to uh, to fill in some of the deficiencies in the force structure that was necessary to achieve the strategy in the first place? Well, I think it's an effort to fill in the deficiencies in force structure, but it's going to, I think it's foredoomed to failure, not because the Russians are habitually inefficient, which is certainly the case, but because it was an ill-conceived mobilization to begin with. And uh, it's, you can't just tra throw troops into uh, combat and expect better results if your strategic management of the, of the operation is incompetent to begin with. And while inadequate force structure has been a problem since the beginning, strategic mismanagement has been equally, if not more culpable from February 24th on. Uh, and the fault lies, well, to some degree with the military command, but let's put it where it belongs. It, you know, it belongs at, uh, with Truman, I mean, with K uh, Putin. As Harry Truman said, you know, the buck stops here. Uh, uh, Putin is the guy who's responsible. And he's been micromanaging the war and he doesn't know how to do it. And as a result, he has weakened himself politically at home and strategically abroad. In, and not just in Ukraine, but we we could go into that. Steve, let me uh, let me ask you to unpack something there. You, you talked about the uh, really a failed uh, or deeply flawed, I think you said, mobilization. You know, uh, I think in the West, we are very eager to seize upon any kind of good news for for the underdog side, the Ukrainians. And so there's been much made in our press about the 200,000 or so Russians who have left the country or tried to leave in order to escape the draft. So what's your sense of how much of a threat domestic resistance to mobilization is to Russia's strategy or, or does it does it matter at all operationally? What do you think? Well, it, it does matter because it indicates popular unwillingness to fight. Second, it indicates a loss of confidence in the state. Third, uh, you know, a lot of Russians and some American uh, 
observers have said that this violates the so-called social compact. Uh, you can have all the power, but just leave us alone in our personal lives, which is a traditional Russian kind of uh, view. Uh, fourth, it shows the incompetence of the state because nothing was planned. They, uh, again, they had to admit, for example, that they declared these four counties or provinces part of Russia, but they don't know what the boundaries of Russia's uh, state are. Border crossings were not uh, set up in time, but now they are. And what this really is, uh, if you know your Russian history, is an attempt to impose a third serfdom on the Russian people. Because along with the mobilization came a, uh, legislation to close the borders, to, uh, to impose draconian punishments on people who violate <clears throat> these laws, uh, more arrests and so on. Uh, and it's like the first serfdom in the sense, because that was the reason for that uh, was to make sure that the Russian army in the 17th century had enough soldiers and force peasants not to flee. Now you have, they're not peasants, but educated professionals, but they're still fleeing. And the morale is bad. The command is clearly demoralized, uh, thanks to Putin's mismanagement and uh, intrigues within the military and uh, paralyzing fear of independent decision making. The state apparatus does not function well. The old mobilization system had broken down and was not, there was really nothing in place when this went out. Uh, this was a, not a mobilization considered in some sort of rational administrative bureaucratic process. It was just, all right, we're mobilizing. Everybody go to this uh, draft station. Uh, as a result, uh, it's not going to improve the military qualitatively. Might improve it quantitatively for a while, but not qualitatively. It's exposed fault lines in Russian society. It's exposed weakness in Putin's support. And I think the longer this thing goes on, the longer uh, or the more extensive signs of civil unrest will occur. Uh, it's generally the case that in Russian history, a protracted war puts the mechanism of the state at supreme risk, even when they win. And Russian statesmen who understood their history understood this. Uh, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, Stalin's 1946 speech, where he said that the Russia, you know, in 41, other people would have thrown me out with good reason. At some point, that dynamic is likely to set in again. And it's clear the state cannot cope with its tasks. And it's also clear that the army can't cope with its mission. That's a recipe for disaster. I like Steve's long-term historical framing there of this uh this serfdom. Uh, Bob, let me turn to you on this question. Do you think... Uh, Here in graduate school, it was pumped into me. So. You can't escape it, right? Uh, Bob, you mentioned at the outset of our discussion that we couldn't simply wave away this mobilization, uh, despite the fact that it may be flawed. But what's your view? Are you uh, as dismissive, perhaps, of this as as Steve sounds like he may be? Or uh, do you think the the problematic nature of the mobilization is really problematic? And if so, will it uh, affect the strategy at all? Yeah. So, um, like I said in in, in the, my first segment there, I, I don't think we should wave it away. Right. I mean, even if these if these let's say it's 300,000 that they eventually mobilize are 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 poorly led uh, are poorly equipped and are not well trained just the addition of that much mass to russian lines is likely to be able to shore them up in certain in certain areas so 
But in terms of the domestic resistance and, you know, the, the, the threat of destabilization, you mentioned, John, in, in, when you framed the question that many people are voting with their feet. The numbers I've seen actually are over 260,000 have left Russia since the mobilization began. And that was as of several days ago. I think it's likely over 300,000 now. I happen to be in Tbilisi, Georgia right now, and uh, the Verkhny Lars border crossing between Georgia and Russia, which is on the main north-south route, comes through the, the North Caucasus into Georgia from Russia. There were traffic jams of up to 30 kilometers uh, of Russians trying to get out uh, of, of Russia and into Georgia starting immediately after the, uh, the mobilization decree was announced. It got to the point where people were walking uh, because the car line was so long that people were just walking. I happened to go here in Tbilisi to get a haircut a few days ago. My barber uh, was a recently arrived six days ago, a young sort of Russian man who had lived in St. Petersburg. Uh, and at least as he framed it, he was a, uh, an opponent of the regime all along, but realized at this point uh, he needed to get out of Russia. He said it took him 30 hours total to get to the Georgian side of the border from St. Petersburg. So he flew uh, and then drove and then walked across. So this is they're they're going they're coming here. They're going to Kazakhstan. They're going to Finland uh, and, and other places. They're flying into Turkey, all places where either they don't need a visa and or they have a land border like they do here. So um, at this point, you know, the, the Russian MOD announced today that they have mobilized 200,000 uh, new new conscripts since the mobilization started. So but at this point, time and a half as many people have left Russia since mobilization was announced as have been mobilized. Right. So uh, I do think um, there is a domestic there is domestic resistance. Some, as I mentioned, are voting with their feet, but there also appears to be a lot of resistance focused in uh, the ethnic minority regions, uh, especially um, the North Caucasus, where uh, a, a lot of these new conscripts are coming from. And in the North Caucasus, of course, that's where Chechnya is. And, and of course, Russia had serious problems, fought two wars with Chechnya uh, in the 90s in the early part of this uh, part of this century. Uh, Chechnya appears, at least for now, to be fairly fairly stable because Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the leader of Chechnya, is a solid Putin ally. In fact, he's he's arguing for, he's pushing for a more uh, a sort of aggressive prosecution of the war. But uh, Dagestan, which is another of the North Caucasus republics, appears to be the focus of the resistance there. There are many, many telegram, uh, you know, on telegram, the, the messaging app, there are many posts, many pictures, many videos of, of violence, violent resistance to the conscription in Dagestan. So um, my sense is in terms of domestic resistance, many are just voting with their feet and leaving, but those who can't uh, and those or those who are being sort of targeted for conscription by the Russian state, which do appear still to be the ethnic minorities, and especially in the North Caucasus, their resistance is more sort of physical in nature. Rather than leaving, they're starting to fight back. Whether that'll destabilize the state as a whole, hard to say. It's probably unlikely but it is something that the Russian government is having to deal with as it pursues its mobilization. Steve, did you want to say something quickly before I turn to Craig on this question? Today's New York Times says that troops who've been called up in this recent mobilization are already being sent to Ukraine. Now, I mean, any professional military man or somebody who's worked with military knows this is a suicide mission. I mean, you're just throwing raw recruits 
into a meat grinder. Craig, let me turn to you on this question of uh, this, what looks like a chaotic mobilization, maybe even uh, unsuccessful in the long run. But uh, what do you think the all of this spells for the strategy, or, or is it just a, an operational uh, set of implications? Uh, this narrative of the Russia on the brink of a precipice is something that could happen. I don't think any of the problems that were cited aren't there. They are there. I might note that Ukraine armed forces, and Ukraine has, has a good army, uh, also uh, has experienced all of these kinds of problems. It was mass flight from Ukraine, where I have my summer home in uh, Montenegro. It's just uh, there, there's hundreds of the Ukrainians everywhere, everywhere that have fled, including young men. Um, they uh, have uh, a whole new cadre of recruits who are quickly trained and thrown into what Steve called a meat grinder. Uh, they've lost a lot of equipment. Uh, uh, they've suffered severe defeats, demoralizing defeats, including recent successes. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's armies that in war generate these kind of problems, I suppose you could say. It's not a uniquely a Russian phenomenon. Is Russia on the brink of a precipice? Maybe, maybe not. I think it, it's maybe more profitable to think about Russia's, what Russia is going to be doing um, before we guess it about what's going to happen to it. I, I was thinking of another Russian statesperson, and Steve cited Russian statespersons, um, Alexander Gorchakov, in the wake of a military defeat. What did he say? La Russie ne boude pas, elle se recolle. Right? Russia is not... Giving in, it's drawing back. So, is this is, is this just another scenario, that another way of understanding what Russia is up to and what they're seeking to accomplish? It's something, thinking strategically, we have to keep in mind as, as a possible direction. I think the most likely direction we're going to be moving in in the months to come. All right, Craig, I, I like your framing of this as kind of a uh... To some respect, the, the ebb and flow of a war, right? Yeah. I mean, we should expect uh, this to not be linear, uh, but rather uh, up and down, I guess, for both sides. But but let me ask you to each weigh in on uh, what we're kind of all dancing around, I guess, to some degree. And, and uh, you know, we talk about Russians fleeing the draft, uh, Putin being criticized from the right. We see now major battlefield losses by the Russians. That's led some in the West to speculate that support for Putin uh, is lessening and that perhaps his grip on power may be showing signs of being not as strong as it was. We know that academic research tells us that on average, personalized dictatorships, and maybe there's an open question as to whether Russia falls in that category, it's got strong institutions in some respects, but it looks kind of like a personalized dictatorship, if you ask me. These tend to fight to the bitter end when they're faced with internal crisis, crises uh, in order to stay in power. And the dictatorships that uh, are under threat domestically are most at risk when we see popular uprisings combined with forces inside the regime, elites perhaps. But, you know, Russia is a unique country, obviously, for many reasons, and not exactly your average dictatorship. So what's what's your sense of this? Is there any reason to think that these historical trends we've seen among other dictatorships don't apply to Russia? Is your read of what's unfolding now uh, lead you to believe that Putin and his regime is any more or less 
at risk. Uh, Craig, what, what do you think? I think it's quite obvious that that the decision to move into Ukraine was an, a, a, a bad decision. Uh, what's happening is not what was intended or planned. Uh, the Russians are scrambling to deal with a, uh, a very difficult situation. That's one thing I'd say, and that, that this has certainly uh, damaged Putin's political standing. I think it's harder to measure public opinion from outside, a little harder. Uh, but certainly it's, it's damaged his, his uh, political stature uh, inside of Russia uh, and amongst elites. Now, I, John, you're quite right. Uh, a person in this situation can, cannot afford to lose, cannot afford to lose. So that uh, they will pull out all stops. And most likely what we're going to see these so-called new recruits, not a more, all brand new, uh, used for is, is, is a, a counter-counter-offensive, maybe launched in the winter to, to, to regain control in some of these areas where there's been a loss, where a loss of control is underway. It's not a happy scenario, but it's, I, I think, more re- realistic than, than some of the more hopeful Russia on the brink scenarios will turn out to be. Now, Bob, I saw you uh, nodding affirmatively yeah, so first of all, I'll, I'll note that I'm a political scientist on on this podcast with two historians, so I'm not going to delve too deeply into Russian history. Uh, and if I do, I, they, hopefully they'll correct me. But I think Craig and Steve know this better than I do. And, and, and so what I would say is popular revolutions don't have a history of much success in Russia, right? There have been many revolts, popular revolts, um, but most of those have been successfully put, put down. And, and, you know, the revolution to end all revolutions in Russia in November of 1917 was really uh, a revolution only in Soviet mythology. In reality, it was a coup, right? It was a coup staged by the Bolsheviks against the provisional government um, that that probably that had popular support, but there were not was not a massive popular uprising that combined then with the you know the Bolshevik party elite uh, to overthrow the government. Um, I think a more likely scenario is is a palace coup. Right. Your, your standard elites acting alone, um, led either maybe by the security forces, in which case you might get an even worse government than we have now. Right. Because that would in would probably be a coup from the right or uh, by the economic elite, people who are who stand to lose and who are losing and stand to lose a whole lot more uh, from the war. Um, I don't know. So the. It's always possible that those there could be some hybrid hybrid palace coup of both security forces and the economic elite, um, but I don't know how that would work since my sense is that but that those two groups have different preferences for what a post-Putin government would look like. Um, but again, I, I, I'd refer to the historians on the podcast for you know sort of a history of 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 coups, revolutions, and revolts in Russia. Let me make a comment, Rajan Menon who is a political science, not a historian, uh, had a piece in The Guardian this week, which really went through that scenario you just outlined, Palisco scenario, very carefully. Thought it quite likely, and his conclusion was, watch out what you ask for. This is not going to be a happy ending. That's where we end. Yeah, I, I'm among those also, uh, and I stand on the shoulders of historians like Stephen Craig and, uh, and others of uh, Russian historians that uh, – you know, think any kind of post-Putin government is is unlikely to change the broad trajectory of 
of Russians, Russia's approach to the West. Uh, so, but, but Steve, let me turn to you. What's your sense of uh, these factors inside Russia, whether there uh, there could be or needs to be a marriage of the street with the elites in order for change to occur? What, what's your sense? Well, let's try to analyze this in a, in a logical way. First of all, there is what Lenin called a revolutionary crisis developing, I think. You have an army that's failing and you have signs of, of an increasingly unhappy public and elite. Second, we know from contemporary revolutions all over the world, none of them succeed unless they are able to obtain the support of people with guns, to put it crudely, or the people with the guns vacate the scene, like Egypt 2011. There's, there's no sign of that yet. However, there is, as we said, some elite disaffection. And I suspect that the army is going to get very upset about being cast as the scapegoat here, which is what's happening if you read the Russian media, because Putin will never allow blame to be attached to him. Third, the security forces, and there are multiple security forces, as in any good autocracy, which is what Russia is, to support him, the security forces are probably going to stay loyal to Putin. The army, however, might break. Now, the use of the army as a revolutionary factor in Russia is, has a checkered history. The only time the army has been successful is has been in the mid-50s when Khrushchev used it to get Beria, uh, and, uh, and in 57 against his opponents as well. But otherwise, the army is not a political actor in Russia. So I, I am not sure of a palace coup, but the problem is if the army breaks down in Ukraine, and I'm not saying it will, but there are signs that it could, uh, then the state will fall with it because it won't be able to prosecute the war and all the chickens will come home to roost. Now, third, the problem of a revolution, there are many problems actually, but the problem of what comes afterwards is twofold. One, we don't know what will come afterwards. Nobody does. So what you're getting is educated speculation. Second, this new regime, whatever its coloration, will have very few instruments with which to prosecute this war. It may not have a choice about that. While it may be anti-Western in orientation, reality will also have a major force in dictating what, it, what its room for maneuver is. Third, if the government falls in Russia, we will have a repeat on a much more dangerous scale of 1991 in the sense that the U.S. government's primary concern, and we all remember this well, was who's in control of the nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union. If the government falls apart, who has physical and operational control of the nuclear weapons command and control and all that institutional setup? This is critical, uh, and it's a factor that I don't know how you can add it to the analysis without complicating things beyond uh, measure. Finally, I, I do have to take issue with what you said, John, about institutions. Russia does not have strong institutions. Putin has systematically weakened all institutions. Even under the Soviets, the institutional structure was not particularly, was not certainly not efficient, might have been a effective up to a point. But uh, you had to have the Communist Party and the KGB as vertical institutions to give coherence to the horizontal uh, Soviet-wide state system. 
that's no longer there. So in that sense, there is a potential for a vacuum. So what you have is an extremely dangerous situation with multiple variables. And as any good mathematician will tell you, you get an equation with multiple variables. It gets very difficult to solve it. All right. Now, Steve, you mentioned that uh, you know, the, the nuclear question was perhaps the most important. Uh, if indeed there are uh, signs of instability within the regime. And of course, we're paying a lot of attention to that right now in the West. And so this is what I, I want to address my last question for you all uh, toward, and that is namely the, the saber rattling that that Putin has uh, been engaging in, his commitment to protect the annexed territories of Ukraine with, quote unquote, all means necessary. How seriously do you think we in the West, or certainly Ukraine, need to take those threats as we continue to train and equip Ukrainians and as the Ukrainians themselves reconquer swaths of lost territory. Bob, let me turn to you first. Well, I think, of course, we need to take them seriously, right? I mean, um, and Putin knows this, right? This is, I would call this, it's a double deterrence game or a dual deterrence game. Russia threatening nuclear use if it faces defeat and making those threats credible, uh, with the annexation of these four regions of Ukraine, which everybody who, who studies Russia knows that according to Russian nuclear doctrine, uh, nuclear use is justified if Russian territory is under threat or in case of an existential threat. And by this, they mean to the regime, not the entire country, right? So um, Putin is trying to deter increase Western support to Ukraine and more aggressive Ukrainian territorial moves uh, by making this this nuclear threat and by making it credible by annexing these territories, which then by, you know, in, in his mind and in Russian law makes them part of the Russian Federation and therefore makes nu justifies nuclear use if they are attacked uh, or if the Ukrainians threaten to take take one of them over completely. Uh, and then the West is trying to deter Russian nuclear use by threatening to enter the conflict more directly uh, and by damaging Russia in other ways if Russia uses nuclear weapons. So, you know, yeah, of course we have to take them seriously. Anytime the leader of a country, especially one a leader wh whom we think is probably uh, motivated by uh, decades of sort of accumulated grievances and is probably not getting very good information due to the fact that you know, the circle of trust in Russia has been has been getting smaller and smaller for years and years. Um, so you've got this problem where uh, you've got a leader uh, with with accumulated grievances and probably operating on, on, on not very good information making these decisions. So, yes, we need to take them seriously, but I don't think uh, we need to let them deter us uh, from the type of support that we've been giving Ukraine to this point. Different types of support, for instance, attack missiles, which have a 300 kilometer range. The Biden administration has been fairly clear to this point that those aren't on the table just because they have the capable capability to reach so deeply inside of Russia proper. So, um, you know, I think I actually think that we the, the West has struck a pretty good balance here, given the, the challenge we're facing with these threats, uh, the nuclear saber rattling from the Russian government. Greg, let, let me turn to you on this question. You know, some might argue that you have to rattle the nuclear saber, maybe that indicates that uh, you're, you're bluffing to some degree, right? That those who are not bluffing don't need to do that. What's, what's your sense? I, I think Bob is uh, 
exactly right. What Putin said, it's been hyped a bit, nuclear saber rattling, really was almost a pure art a re-articulation of, of Russian nuclear doctrine, and Bob stated it very well. And it's an accompaniment to the annexation of these provinces that is there now in Russian eyes, uh, and it, uh, part of the Russian Federation. This makes them something, uh, places that Russia has an obligation to defend is the motherland. Its doctrine vets the use of probably tactical nuclear weapons we're talking about, uh, uh, to, to defend the motherland under assault. This is not new. Now, Medvedev said it in a more over-the-top way, unfortunate, but I, I, I don't think Putin's remarks need to be blown out of proportion beyond what they were. Of course, they have to be taken seriously. Um, and, and, and it's quite clear, isn't it, that the West is taking them seriously? Uh, for instance, the way we reacted to uh, Zelensky's uh, request for a fast track to, uh, to NATO, which was very distanced. And, and the idea wasn't embraced. It uh, wasn't put on a, on a track. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> it's been repeatedly made clear that we're not going to send combat forces into Ukraine in support of Ukrainian independence. Uh, we will support them financially with military material, with training, with uh, intel, very important in these Ukrainian offenses, offenses underway right now, but not with a commitment of uh, combat force, not with intervention. That seems to be taking Putin's, call them threats, if you will, it's very serious. I don't think that will change. Dave, let me, let me turn to you. You, you, you did bring up the subject of nuclear uh, threats earlier, but uh, l- let me ask you if uh, you want to add to what you you stated earlier. Given Putin's belief that Ukraine is Russia, his nuclear threats at the beginning of this operation back in February already were consonant with the doctrine, as Bob said, that since this is Russian territory, if this is invaded and so forth, Russia has the right to use nuclear weapons to defend itself. And he has since ratcheted up that rhetoric, particularly in his most recent speeches. Uh, Medvedev is, uh, as Craig said, is even more hysterical. Uh, Putin's speech last Friday, by the way, he's quite over the top, uh, un- quite unhinged. Uh, he accuses Ukraine of genocide, of U.S. of Satanism and so on. The purpose of the nuclear threat in Russian strategy and rhetoric is to deter NATO or a- any enemy, for that matter, from prosecuting a war to its fullest and threatening Russia. It's to give Russia a free hand operationally. Second, it's an information weapon. And third, it's an attempt to establish uh, what the Russians call reflexive control, that is getting the opponent to make decisions that he thinks are in his interest, but actually work for Russia's benefit. Now there's a fourth purpose. Besides intimidating everybody, it's to save Putin's position at home and prevent not only NATO from supporting Ukraine or Ukraine from moving forward, but also to make sure that the Russian army can claim that somehow it has won by getting Ukraine to stop the operation. It reflects, as we've talked about, the worsening political situation at home, certainly the deteriorating military situation as well. And it is part of what I think is the new strategy that we are going to see more and more frequent, uh, not only more frequent nuclear threats, but more, I would say, escalatory, at least in rhetoric, nuclear threats, even though there has been no physical sign of preparation for a nuclear launch as of this moment. I think that's going to be part of the strategy. 
whether or not they launch a nuclear weapon or not, nobody knows. It's ultimately only it's Putin and the defense minister and chief of the general staff have to sign off. But there is no doubt, and this is true, that anybody who has participated in a war game in Washington, and I believe all of us have, uh, knows that Russian nuclear threats are always taken as credible. No exception in this case. The papers are full of uh, reporting that the U.S. government and presumably our allies in NATO take this equally seriously. That does not mean we are inhibited or intimidated in supporting Ukraine, but it has been restricted to the kinds of things you and Craig have talked about uh, up till now. However, if Putin does decide to launch a nuclear weapon, and most of us think that if he does, it would be a tactical nuclear weapon directed against Ukraine. The problem is exactly what military benefit does it get him? And there becomes very difficult. As uh, This big article in today's New York Times, which is quite good on this point, uh, U.S. officials have virtually come to the conclusion that there is no really discernible military benefit from a nuclear weapon. But the problem we have with Mr. Putin is, first of all, he doesn't think the way Americans do. And we've already and you have to, everybody has to understand that. Second, the most important thing for him is staying in power. And his power is now on the line. When he invaded Ukraine, he bet the farm. And today, the, the man with the mortgage papers is beginning to try to foreclose, uh, if you want that analogy. So he has to threaten nuclear weapons in order to save himself, if not Russia, from this maelstrom that he has created. And he is not the type of man to retreat. He is the type of man to escalate f further and double down. And he may think that attack nuke against Ukraine will somehow save his situation when it will just make things infinitely worse for everybody. Well, a sobering note to end on, gentlemen, but uh, Dr. Bob Hamilton, Dr. Craig Nation, and Dr. Steve Blank, I am really grateful for your time today. It's been an, another enlightening discussion with the three of you, and I'm, I'm hopeful we can gather you all again as this conflict continues to unfold. Thank you for joining us here at SSI Live. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Enjoyed it. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.